This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Ashok Gopal. Ashok Gopal is a graduate in history from the Savitribai Phule Pune University. After working as a journalist for 15 years in Mumbai and Pune, he has worked as a freelance content writer for some years and then shifted to the development sector. Since the year 2000, he has worked as a consultant for a number of NGOs including grassroots organizations in the Bundelkhand region of Uttar Pradesh, India. He has supported NGOs in the areas of proposal development, monitoring and documentation in the domains of natural resource management, livelihood development, rights and entitlements, and rural education. He has also developed the curriculum and multilingual resource materials for activity-based teaching and learning of competencies related to constitutional values in primary schools. As an independent researcher, he has been studying the life and thoughts of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar since 2003. The output of his effort is a part apart, the life and thought of B.R. Ambedkar, an intellectual biography of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. It draws on a number of English and Marathi sources and provides a wealth of material previously unavailable in English. It is this book that we will be discussing in today's podcast. Ashok, I welcome you to this conversation and look forward to discussing the book. Thank you. Thank you. So let me begin by asking you about your main motivation behind writing a book on Ambedkar. What was it? Well, initially, uh, my motivation, I didn't start with the intention of writing a book. I was just studying Ambedkar's thought. After a few years, I, I realized that uh, there are a lot of gaps and inadequacies in what has been written about Dr. Ambedkar. So those had to be filled. So that was my first, uh, first uh, what you call, uh, motivation. Then subsequently, uh, when after the first draft of the book was uh, done, uh, the publisher, who was also the, my editor, suggested that you know more biographical information should be added and all that so I, the scope of the book uh, the scope of the book uh, widened and then i had also the objective that i should write in a manner that you know uh, even a lay person can uh, understand a dr ambedkar's life and thought so uh, so to reach to the maximum audience that was my uh, an objective that developed uh, after the first draft. Right. So what are some of the methods and sources that you have used in bringing Ambedkar's life to the limelight? Yeah. So there is a, there are two parts. One is about his life and then the other 
is about his uh, evolution of his thought. As far as his life is concerned, uh, there is a uh, a biography, multi-volume biography available in Marathi, uh, which is uh, can be treated as a primary source because the author knew Dr. Ambedkar uh, <clears throat> and was associated him for, for some time. And so that is actually the only sort of uh, primary source we have on many aspects of Ambedkar's early life, especially. And then, of course, there are other uh, materials. A uh, lot of Vedic archivists have found out uh, information about his family and about his uh, <clears throat> activities. So that uh, all that material was what I used for as far as about his life is concerned. As far as his uh, <clears throat> ideas are concerned, I used. Uh, all his writings and speeches in Marathi and in English. Initially, till the 30s, he wrote a lot in Marathi. After that, it was mostly in English only. So I basically went through the entire writing and speeches of uh, Dr. Rambedkar, including some which have not been uh, featured in the government uh, publication on Dr. Rambedkar's writing and speeches. There are some omissions. So, including those, I studied uh, uh, all of them repeatedly to find the common trend, trends and uh, recurring ideas, recurring concerns. Right. So, could you also talk about your own positionality as a researcher and author? So, uh, as I said, I uh, wanted to communicate uh, Dr. Ambedkar's life and thought the largest possible audience. So my experience as a journalist and as an education content developer, of course, came into play there. But apart from that, there is a position that I, an unavoidable position, uh, that is uh, your social background. So that is something, um, I mean, I say it upfront that I come from a uh, upper caste family and uh, I have not experienced any of those deprivations and humiliations that the lips have, have experienced routinely. So this, uh, this, this, I mean, this is a, this is not, this is, this position of privilege is something that has to be acknowledged and one has to see that, uh, is that clouding your views or, you know, are you not saying something that you ought to be saying? So therefore, in the entire writing process, the reviews by a, a certain eminent scholars was important, including Dalit scholars. So on the basis of their feedback and all that, uh, I developed the uh, final manuscript. I have lived with Dr. Ambedkar's thought for a long time, so if there were no major kind of uh, flaws in my manuscript. But still, there were things that were pointed out and I have addressed. Okay, interesting. So, uh, do you think that reading Ambedkar also challenged your own preconceived ideas and assumptions? Yeah. So, to start with, uh, when before I started uh, reading Dr. Ambedkar, I had read a lot about, uh, uh, about and by Mahatma Gandhi and also Jawaharlal Nehru. So, uh, and I did have a, a certain view of Mahatma Gandhi. But of course, that was the one of the first things that Ambedkar, uh, reading Ambedkar, I realized that, you know, there is, uh, the Mahatma was also a uh, 
I mean, he also had his uh, feelings. So that was one of the first uh, realizations. Later, uh, I also realized something that I met Dr. Ambedkar points out that Indian scholarship has been highly class-based, so to speak. He used class and caste in overlapping ways. So there are certain things that scholars have not even studied. Like at the time he wrote about untouchability, about the origin of untouchability. He said that, you know, uh, when this is an issue that nobody has even tackled, uh, one can understand that foreign scholars are not tackling it, but Indian scholars are... Uh, uh, till that time, no one had even uh, addressed that issue. So this is a chronic problem in Indian scholarship. It's what he called its uh, class bias. So these are some of the things I uh, realized. And when I look back at my own education and the kind of ed education I, I had received, basically, you know, I had studied uh, history and constitutional history of India, but I had hardly come across Dr. Ambedkar in my uh, college education. So that itself shows the kind of biases that exist, deep biases that exist in our uh, curriculum. So these are uh, some of the things that were quite eye-opening to me. And of course, later there are other ideas on these ideas on democracy and all that. But uh, those were like learning, but there were uh, the, uh, the points I mentioned earlier are about unlearning. So there was quite a bit of unlearning that I had to do. Right. Uh, also, you know, you very interestingly mentioned that Ambedkar was not a thinker in the traditional sense. Why do you think this is the case? So he was a thinker in politics. He was a thinker in public life. So and his thought emerged out of the conditions he faced, the opportunities that were available, and the other uh, people involved, the other... Uh, political interests involved, including the you know, British government and the Congress and all that. So his thought is a very uh, live kind of uh, response uh, to, to to actual situations. So that way he's not in a, he's nowhere an armchair uh, thinker or philosopher. That's, that's one of the basic uh, uh, key features of his thought. And at the same time, while there, it is not just that he's just responding to uh, situations. Uh, he's following certain principles and he's following certain methods. So that principles and methods are uh, uh, applicable, uh, can be applied even today. Uh, the particular ideas that he mooted or the strategies he followed at that time may not be relevant. But the principles and methods are uh, relevant even today. So in this sense, he is very different from your philosopher who is uh, who sitting in uh, in an isolated uh, air zone and uh, talking about some universal truths and things like that. So uh, his thought is very dynamic and it has to be understood that way. So that I thought is a very, I think is a very major difference between him and the traditional notion of a thinker or a philosopher in India. Mm, all right. So how did Ambedkar manage to be both a social reformist and a statesman at the same time? Uh, whether he managed to do it successfully is open to uh, debate because uh, I mean, social reformist, a political leader and statesman. So, uh, so because his 
his his struggle was that while he was representing a um, highly marginalized group of people in India, and he was struggling to establish their basic human rights. He also had the larger uh, the whole society in mind, and he wanted to play a role in in nation building also. So this was a difficult kind of uh, dualism that he tried to deal with. So uh, so sometimes um, he switched more to one side than the other, particularly in the in when the Constitution of India was being drafted. He took certain stands which were against his own. And earlier stand, so uh, it it is a difficult um, path he followed, and uh, it could be argued that uh, he probably was not as successful in managing it as he would have liked. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that is that is one of the uh, one of the many aspects of his work, which is uh, where you we have to. Uh, make our own judgments. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to ask you yet another very difficult question and also a broad one, uh, what did Ambedkar think about democracy? Yeah, so his notion of democracy was um, fundamentally different from the uh, what we are, uh, understand as democracy in school and what is generally understood. That is, uh, we have the idea of basically representative government and uh, which assures certain basic freedoms to all citizens. Now, uh, so it's a political, we are talking about political structures and the institutions. Uh, but Ambedkar's uh, view, which was to a great extent influenced by the views of the American philosopher John Dewey, who was his uh, teacher in Columbia University, their democracy is very much a way of life, a form of society where uh, the Interactions between people are so rich and different people and different groups are so rich that everybody learns and everybody develops, everybody's personality develops through this process. So it is, uh, and he called that social democracy. Uh, we did not use that term. Ambedkar, Dr. Ambedkar used that term. And he made a fundamental difference between social democracy and political democracy and said that what we got after independence, I mean, through the constitution of India, is political democracy. But uh, social democracy has yet to be created in this country. That is, and that is to say, there were kind of conditions that will allow for a free uh, exchange of views and experiences um, across social groups and different interests. So it is a, almost like a, it is, you could say there is something utopian in that, in that vision, but uh, it is based on uh, solid uh, social psychology. That is to say that, you know, we learn through our interactions with others. <laughs> That's the basic thing. People who have limited interactions with others are uh, relatively underdeveloped as compared to in terms of their personalities as compared to people who have a wide range of different interactions with uh, different kinds of people. So that was the notion of democracy that he had. And that kind of interaction, of course, requires, uh, it has, you require liberty, you require equality, 
and you have to have a very strong sense of fraternity that all of us are all second and for with all our differences we are part of one big human family so that uh, that moral value of fraternity is the base of social democracy yeah i mean of course right so uh, what were his ideas on caste uh, how did he think about caste through a constitutional lens so on uh, the constitutional lens is a different aspect as far as caste is concerned he uh, recognized that it was a major determinant of opportunities and interactions and status uh, and uh, living conditions in india so that he he highlighted that probably more than anybody else in his time he also identified some of the features of caste like for example caste works through endogamy which still is the case even today he also identified that caste is a system of uh, you know a it's a system of uh, what he called graded inequality that is to say that every caste looks down upon some other caste so it's like a ladder where every every caste is got some as the privilege you could say <laughs> a negative privilege of looking down upon somebody else and finally the last at the bottom of the ladder is of course the untouchables who are shunned by all the people above so these were his ideas on caste in essence as far as con- when it came to the constitution of india was concerned there was a i mean like the caste is not mentioned in the constitution <laughs> Uh, untouchability is abolished but caste itself is not abolished so that and it was not part of his demands also so that is uh, there is there were a, there was a technical and legal issue there because by then reservation based on um for reservations for scheduled caste were like was accepted and also it was accepted that certain uh, benefits should be offered to what are today known as OVCs. So, so if this system has to work, then you can't say that the caste is not there. <laughs> so it's a paradox, you know. For, for getting over the discrimination enforced by caste, one has to recognize the existence of caste. So therefore, the constitution of India is silent on caste. Yeah. So, uh, when we are talking about class, uh, there is also a difference in the way Ambedkar looks at caste and class from other Indian thinkers. And of course, we have to talk about his ideological relationship with M.K. Gandhi, the name that you also mentioned at the beginning itself. So, how do you see his analysis of the issues of caste and class as different and his relationship with Gandhi? Yeah. So, caste and... So, there, as far as caste, and versus class was concerned, he was pitted against the communists who recognized the, uh, at this time at least, in his time at least, only class as the uh, main uh, vehicle of the social and economic relations in India or anywhere in the world. And he kept saying that you know you you are uh, you uh, you cannot ignore uh, caste. Uh, <clears throat> class matters, of course, but <laughs> caste also matters. And in fact, caste comes before class because uh, he analyzed this very well. Since he said at one place that you know uh, 
both um, when it depending on the situation people foreground their caste or class identity so but uh, the caste identity remain this permanent class identity can change depending on your you know um, economic circumstances you you could be an owner of a factory one day and tomorrow you may be on the streets but your caste identity will not go irrespective of your whatever happens in your life you will continue to enjoy its uh, privilege or suffer its uh, disadvantages so that was his one of his fundamental disagreements with communist uh, marxist socialist sophist as far as uh, you know, gandhi was concerned it is a bit complicated because prema uh, fesi gandhi was against caste but at the same time he wanted to uh, for a large part of his life he uphold upheld the chaturvarna model and uh, he uh, put it across as some kind of an ideal uh, society model and uh, ambedkar's very firm opinion was that uh, you if you want to dump caste you have to dump chaturvarna chaturvarna is the ideological base of caste and um, so therefore what gandhi was saying that you know uh, we can uh, we'll do away with caste but we'll retain chaturvarna to avoid dr ambedkar that just didn't make sense at all so of course in later in life it appears that uh, gandhi changed his views on chaturvarna but those are like stray comments and uh, you don't get a full rejection at least i couldn't see a kind of a complete rejection of chaturvarna ideology and dr ambedkar certainly could not see it <laughs> right uh, in your book of course uh, 1930 also comes up so what role does this year play in shaping ambedkar's ideas it was a very important uh, year uh, in two ways one was that was the time when there was an opportunity available through the simon commission and the, uh, the first round table conference an opportunity was available for the depressed classes as they were known then to strongly uh, argue their case for uh, assured political representation this opportunity was available uh, earlier in 1919 also but that was a very limited opportunity which dr ambedkar used and could not obtain much so and after 10 years that opportunity was to come so in 29 it did come so that was a very important uh, turning point for him and at that time he had to emerge as a national spokesman for a depressed class so it was a uh, big step that he had to take simultaneously it was also a time when uh, just in that a big satyagraha had started in nashik by his supporters for entry into a, a round table there and that was a very sustained uh, agitation so so that was so that was actually the largest uh, instance of mass mobilization of the depressed classes uh, till then so both things were happening he was uh, he was uh, concerned about what was happening in nashik at the same time he was concerned about uh, what he could obtain from england so the so 1930 is actually the time he emerges as a national leader you could say right 
So, what were his views on religion and Buddhism? On religion, he took religion seriously. He took religion very seriously and he thought that religion had a great influence on people's lives. And religion could not be just dismissed as opium of the masses or whatever. And at the same time, he was not ready to accept religion as a given which you have to just take, you know, whatever you have got from your uh, ancestors, whatever religion you have got and whatever practices and customs they have been following, you just continue that tradition. He was not ready to accept that. He wanted religion to be examined like anything else, uh, like any other uh, aspect of human life or human uh, experience. And he wanted a religion based on reason, I mean, at least uh, aligned to rationality, conducive to democracy, upholding human dignity. So he, and these are, these were not necessarily values that were uh, prominent at the time when uh, the ancient religions evolved. So, so you could say that he would have been better off uh, with a modern religion, but he was not interested in starting some kind of religious movement or something. He wanted to build on existing traditions. And for that, uh, he found Buddhism the most suitable uh, for his purposes. So accordingly, he interpreted, uh, he gave a interpretation of Buddhism that is it was not entirely unique because there were people before him who also saw Buddhism as a uh, rational, social ethic which is conducive to, uh, in, you know, which is uh, aligned to uh, modern values. But nevertheless, that his the uh, how they how he related religion to social democracy, Buddhism to social democracy, that was very unique. So. So he is a um, thinker uh, on religion and also another thing is that he was not just uh, interested in a sort of an intellectual acceptance of a religion. Uh, he, he he had that thing that it is about a certain faith and you know, so, so there is a, so it's again, it's complicated. So there is a intellectual acceptance, but at the same time, the religious experience uh, also mattered to him. So, so therefore he had, you know, idols of Buddha and he, he was not, he, he didn't believe in idol worship, but still that uh, treating some places and objects and some ideas as sacred, inviolable, as we do in, as is normal in our other religions, was also important for him. So he was trying to forge a, a new way of looking at religion, which does not entirely reject what we have ex uh, received from the past, but at the same time does not entirely accept the past also, whatever we have got from the past. So it is a challenging, it is a challenging interpretation <laughs> for us even today. <laughs> Okay, so uh, do you feel that there are any limitations in your work or like some challenges that you face? So there are some obvious limitations because it is a book on Dr. Ambedkar's and on the evolution of his idea. 
to certain aspects of his life. For example, his work as a lawyer, that short covered uh, that that was the source of his livelihood. That was not covered much, hardly covered. In fact, then his associates uh, and contemporaries are just dealt with as you know, you know, you could say in the language of fiction they are side characters. So you know, I have not gone into detail there. Uh, so and even on the uh, like the political uh, struggles uh, of the scheduled caste federation, which were conducted independently of uh, Dr. Ambedkar. That again, I have not gone into. So because my focus is on Dr. Ambedkar, so uh, a lot of things around that was happening around him and was relevant at that time, that has been ex sort of downplayed or excluded. That was one. Secondly, as far as within the scope, within the frame of the book, there were certain unavoidable limitations. One is that, you know, I am trying to communicate in a manner that a lay person can understand. So I have to go at a certain pace. But still, the number of ideas is so much. So what happened? And then there are limits to a size of a book, a printed book. So many ideas I have not gone into as much uh, detail as uh, some other authors uh, might go into. So that was one. Then on certain, given the on uh, the uh, limitations of sources available, there are some aspects of Ambedkar's uh, life related to the evolution of his thought about which we are, we don't know much at all. Like, for example, he decided to form the Independent Labour Party in the 30s. It comes as a kind of almost like a sudden announcement. You know, he would have certainly talked about this with his colleagues. But we don't have any record of those conversations. So there are these kind of gaps in his, uh, in trying to, when we try to understand the, the different stages in his thought. So some, so, so all in all, so some limitations are, uh, imposed by the frame of the book, some limitations are imposed by the audience I was trying to address, and some limitations are because of paucity of source. And there could be some other limitations which uh, uh, you know critics will note in their mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah. So last question: Why do you think that you know a book on Ambedkar is necessary? What is the global and national need for it? In other words, who should be reading Ambedkar and why? Yeah, so my not so humble belief is that every educated person should read Dr. Ambedkar. Everybody who values human dignity and democracy should read Ambedkar. Dr. Ambedkar. Everybody uh, who uh, is socially sensitive, uh, aware, and wants to play a meaningful role in society. Uh, wants to lead what is uh, what Dr. Ambedkar would consider a good life. That is that you don't just take care of yourselves, but you also uh, work for the larger good as much as you can within your uh, limitations and your position. So all such people for any and uh, of course a basic education is assumed because to understand Dr. Ambedkar, uh, you need to have uh, familiarity with some of the concepts that he is using. Um, so I would say at least a basic school education is required. So uh, given that, with these uh, sort of you know, givens, uh, everybody should read 
Doctor Ambedkar. Although I um, like I said, there are two. There is a principles he follows and methods of thinking. These remain valid and useful even today. Although particular strategies he adopted or particular theories he put forward um, may not be uh, valid today. And of course, conditions in his time and conditions in our time are greatly changed. So even, for example, the influence of caste in his time was different from the influence of caste today. Caste works in a different manner, in different... Some things remain, what he pointed out remain. Like endogamy remains the main uh, characteristics of uh, low feature of caste. Caste works through endogamy. Arranged marriages are based on endogamy. But uh, there are some other aspects of uh, caste and like how caste is used in politics, how caste network work and uh, so and how caste is now you know re there's a resurgence also of caste identity more than uh, in some cases more than it was in his time in his time all said and done the nationalist movement also wanted to was saying that you know caste is something we have to get over but today in some pockets in some areas we see that people are flaunting that they are caste as if it's a so they are not ashamed of caste. They are not saying that this is something that we have to get over. So situations have changed. So therefore, we have to understand the situations also. But the principles he followed, the values he upheld, and the methods he followed remain very useful. Apart from that, of course, his life struggle itself is a great source of inspiration. And, and other things, you know, his reading and how he formed ideas, there is so much to learn from you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you so much for this conversation. And I truly enjoyed talking to you about your new book. And like you said, I hope each and every person picks up a copy and reads Ambedkar for what he has to offer to this world. Thank you once again, Ashok, for joining me on New Books Network and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much.